Welcome to the Commission Podcast. You've joined us as we spend our summer at Revive 2019, Commission's annual Bible Festival. We're in the seminar tents for the next few weeks as we hear talks on a huge variety of topics. Today we hear from Rachel and Felicia from the Christian Medical Fellowship as they walk us through medical and ethical issues. Just a heads up, the topic of this seminar deals with sensitive beginning and end of life issues. We understand that for many, these are difficult topics and we just don't want you to be caught off guard. It might be that this is an episode you save for later. As I said, I'm Rachel and I'm a surgical doctor in London. Um, I also work for CMF. I head up the student work and I also go to Brixton Local Church as well. I'm Felicia and I'm GP in London and I also work for CMF, Christian Medical Fellowship. Um, Christian Medical Fellowship is here to unite doctors and nurses uh, to live and speak for Jesus Christ in the workplace. But we are also have amazing resources for Christians in healthcare. Um, and uh, today we're going to talk about um, the issues about beginning and end of life and how best to engage in those conversations with your friends so that we sound credible, because we, we are credible people, to be able to talk about um, God's uh, narrative in this world and also so that we um, are compassionate in so doing. And sorry, I go to Christchurch Ellsfield, so I'm a commissioner as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, so talking about beginning and end of life, um, essentially we're not going to, we're going to try and not talk for that long so that we can have a nice big chunk of Q&A because I'm sure people have come with their questions that they want answered. Um, we hope to give some, yeah, just a snapshot of a couple of issues. With beginning and end of life, it's very complex. People have written whole topics on just, you know, one part of one issue. Um, so we're just going to cover a few things um, and give you a, a snapshot and some biblical insights. Um, and yeah, feel free to ask questions if there's anything else that you wanted uh, covered. Um, this is the part where I do a trigger warning. Um, these issues are not just out there in secular society. They're here, they're within the church. So. If anything that um, we talk about today, um, you know, stirs up anything in you and you want to come and chat to Felicia or, or I at the end, please, please, please do feel f um, free to do that. Um, we're here to help. We're part of the Commission Network, as Felicia was saying. And yeah, we want to serve you guys well and help and support you, whatever your experiences and however these issues may um, affect you. At some point in all of our lives, we're going to be touched by healthcare, whether it's for ourselves or for our relatives. And with the constant advancement of medical technology, you know, if we understand the issues, understand the sticking points, understand what the Bible says about it and how we can respond in a positive uh, and engaging way that points to Christ, then actually, hopefully, yeah, we'll have the confidence to, you know, in those water cooler moments to say something that will point our friends and our colleagues and our loved ones to Christ. At the beginning of life, um, one of the most, uh, the biggest issues, the most contentious issues is abortion and that's what I'm mainly going to be talking about. We've all seen the nasty exchanges in Parliament, in, on the media, on social media and beyond and we can often find ourselves in the hot seat uh, and we're called out at being uh, uncompassionate or uncaring or we're, we're anti-women. Um, yeah, so what are the issues? What are the main sticking points and how do we engage? So I'm just going to share with you a few um, abortion stats. So globally, one in four women will undergo an abortion in their lifetime. It's estimated that there um, are 500 abortions every single day in the UK. So that's equivalent to an Airbus A380. Um, abortion was legalized in the UK in 1967. And since then, it's estimated that no 
9 million abortions have occurred in the UK. Um, another worrying stat is that there are estimated to be at 160 million missing women in the UK. This is where, in cultures where uh, people, when they find out they're having a girl, will terminate them because they're not, they want to have a boy. Um, yeah, so as I was saying, abortion was legalised in the UK in 1967 and to have an abortion, um, it has to be approved by two doctors and it has to meet one of four grounds. Um, so before 24 weeks, um, it has to be, um, if the pregnancy was to continue, it would cause significant uh, psychological or physical effects to the mother or her family. After 24 weeks, um, people are able to um, have an abortion if there is a serious risk to the mother. Uh, also, uh, if the uh, fetus is going to be born, if the child is going to be born with a serious uh, abnormality or physical uh, ailment. So what does the Bible have to say about all of these issues? I think something that's helpful to do is to have a global perspective of the Bible. So we're we're very used to having the you know creation, fall, redemption, restoration, kind of a, a big oversweep of what the Bible's about. Um, and also there are some specific Bible texts that can help us. In doing this, we see a loving Creator God, who created human beings, male and female, and in His image, reminding us of the nature and source and value of every human life. We also see how sin has broken our relationship with God, but also our relationships with each other, the world, uh, our mind, our body, our soul. And it reminds us of the or origins of death and disease. The fall, however, is not the end. And through the Bible, we see that God had a rescue plan for each and every one of us to reconcile us back to himself through his son's death on the cross. Those who believe in Jesus are forgiven for all of their sins, past and, past and present and future and we have a wonderful hope we have a wonderful counselor who the lord um, left when he left this earth we have who advocates for us and we can also share this hope with others and point to a future where there will be no more sin or suffering or brokenness and everything will be restored i just want to share with you two specific texts that i find really helpful when uh, thinking about abortion um psalm 139 so in, in the creation narrative, we um, come across the idea of the Imago Dei, so that we are made in the image of God. And Psalm 139 just unpacks that a bit more for us. So I'm just going to read um, verses 13 and 14. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Here we see an intimate process through which God has made us and he knew us in that dark place, our mother's womb. We weren't just a bunch of cells, but known and loved by God. I think something else that is also helpful is the incarnation. God chose to save us, his enemies, through his son who came to this earth as a human being. And he didn't just pitch up as a man and go, hey, okay, I'm gonna spend three years on earth and I'm gonna die on the cross. He came as a 16 cell embryo and also as a 12 week fetus. And even in this small and vulnerable and seemingly insignificant state, he was recognizable as our Lord and savior. In the narrative of Luke, we see when Elizabeth met with um, her cousin, Mary, and it's estimated that the baby Jesus was probably about five or six weeks old at that time. But if you read the, if you read the account in Luke, you see that Elizabeth 
Um, as soon as she saw Mary coming towards her, the baby inside her leapt, and she and she says, "Oh wow, um, I'm so privileged to meet the mother of my Lord." So even at this small, small, vulnerable state, we see Jesus recognizable, and I think that's really significant as we think um, of the sticking points that people often have with abortion. Oh, it's just a bunch of cells. Oh, it's not really human life. But if Jesus is recognizable at this stage, how? Um, it shows us that we're also valuable or humans are valuable, whether they're a few cells or whether they're 95 years old. So often we can, we can think, okay, yes, I see the biblical narrative. I see that life is valuable and precious and important um, and, and God has made each and every one of us. But Rachel, what about those difficult scenarios? What about those difficult situations that people find themselves in? Surely um, abortion's a better option in those cases. Let's take the 13-year-old who was raped by a, fa- a relative and finds herself pregnant. Or the couple who have a child that is desperately wanted but they find out has a severe, significant abnormality. Or perhaps the university student who finds herself pregnant and thinks, if I have this baby, that's it. At the end of my uni degree, I'm going to not have a career. I'm just going to, yeah, I'm not going to be able to get anywhere in life. How do we respond in those difficult, difficult cases? There's no easy answers, but I just want to um, give us a few ways that we can respond compassionately and credibly. I think the first thing is to listen and to listen well. And so often it can be easy to go, oh, I think you should just do this in this situation. But actually, let's, let's be people that listen and listen well. Let's also be people that empathise with the situation that's in front of us. Um, and let's acknowledge the brokenness of this world. And in doing so, I think we can also point to, point to Jesus. Yes, re- this world is broken. This world is not as it should be, as we heard this morning. Um, and this is, you know, this is a, a part of it. This is a symptom of that. In listening and um, acknowledging, let us also then speak truth in love. Let us um, be glad to tell people of the standards that God calls us to live by and not be afraid to do so because actually they are for our good. Um, a book that was released um, a couple of years ago by uh, Glenn Harrison called A Better Story. And in that, he, he's talking about sexuality, but he's telling us that, you know, the biblical narrative, um, the Christian faith is a better story. It's there to help us to flourish. And I think so often when we're faced with difficult choices, we can see that we might see an easy option that's against kind of how God wants us to live. But actually, also often when we take the path that may seem more difficult or challenging, actually God can use that for his glory. Um, In it, he can help us to flourish. So um, examples of this would be, um, there are lots of um, cases and stories. I've seen even one the other day on Facebook about somebody who, um, for example, had a, a was uh, pregnant and she found out that she had stage four cancer and the doctors were saying that this baby's either not gonna survive or if you don't, if you have this baby, uh, you're, you know, the cancer is going to kill you, or yeah, you, it's not going to end well. But actually, she um, kept her baby. She delivered a healthy baby at 34 weeks. Uh, she was able to undergo cancer treatment. Uh, she ended up cancer-free. She's been cancer-free for 10 years, and now she has a healthy uh, 10-year-old daughter. And we need to be telling people these stories because so often the narrative is. No, that's, that's difficult, that's challenging, you know. You can't have a child that's going to have a severe disability. It's going to ruin your life. But actually, we should be telling these stories of people who have had um, children in difficult circumstances and actually they have been um, encouraged and good things have come out of it. 
it's not, it doesn't mean that it's going to be all roses and lollipops. Yes, life is difficult and life is challenging. But even in difficult situations, God can use them. The final thing I wanted to say about, um, about being compassionate and credible is actually walking with people right from the outset, right from when they're in a difficult situation. Let's learn to love people, our friends and our family and our fellow churchgoers well. Um, I think, yeah, we can be like, oh, I think you should do this. And then we walk away. But actually, we should be walking alongside them, going to antenatal visits, offering to be there in delivery, checking up on people after they've had, um, they've gone through a difficult pregnancy. How are you doing? How can I support you and love your family well? And I think in doing that, we again, we appoint to Jesus. And often uh, when we do this with people who aren't Christians, I think they're like, why are you doing this? Why are you being so kind to me? Why are you offering to help? And it's just a wonderful opportunity to say, um, I'm, I'm comforting you with the comfort that I have received by knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And hopefully, yeah, and in that we can, we can point to Jesus and bring people um, into his family. So that's just a kind of a brief overview of um, how we can engage with uh, some people, um, people that um, are maybe considering an abortion or in a situation where the world says, oh, I think you should have an abortion. Um, but there's lots and lots of beginning of life technologies out there that are coming and we need to know how to engage with them. So again, I'm just going to give you a three points to just help you through that. So the first thing is we have to know about the technologies. I think we can look on, you know, wherever we, whichever media outlet and see, oh, okay, look, gene editing is coming. Oh, that looks really complicated. I don't know anything about that. Therefore, I'm not going to engage. But actually, often there are like really simple YouTube videos that will explain to you um, like how the technology works. Um, and in doing that, you can say, okay, well, okay, so this is how the technology works. Okay, so what do I think about that as a Christian? And then again, it's helpful to go back to the global biblical narrative of the Bible and see, okay, how does this fit in? Okay, there's, the Bible is, you know, pre, is agricultural, pre-technological. It doesn't say, thou shalt not edit your, ch your children's genes. It doesn't say that. But actually, using and uh, knowing our Bibles well, we can pick out things um, that may be helpful. So, yeah, like knowing that everybody's valuable and precious, knowing what it means to be human, um, knowing that actually God's the creator and we as human beings aren't, can help and uh, can just help us start to unpick um, these technologies and look at how we can respond to them as, as Christians. Okay, so I'm going to hand over to Felicia now, who's going to um, tell us about some end of life issues as well. If your mother was dying, how would you want someone to treat her? If you were told that you had an incurable condition that would lead to death, how would you want to be treated? What are you most afraid of? Is it pain and suffering? Or is it the uncertainty, the fear of being dependent and not being in control? Well, my own personal experience is that my mother suffered from seven years of Alzheimer's before she died. And as some of you will have also experienced or heard about, there is a loss of that person. There's a loss of um, communication. She was no longer tell, able to tell me anything. She was no longer able to interact. She didn't even know who we were. And it got to the point where she could no longer eat or move. My mother-in-law suffered 10 years before she died. She had a condition where she couldn't eat at all, so she was ostracized from society in that culture. She couldn't go out. She was isolated, and she had to have a feeding tube in order to eat. But that was no life for her, or was it? And at the end, even with a feeding tube, she choked on her own saliva. How do we determine whose life is worth living? 
Today I want you to show you that dying is actually about living at the end. Dying is a season of life, albeit the last season, whether it's a short illness, such as an accident, or a long-term chronic condition, such as dementia, stroke or cancer. Until we grasp that dying is about living at the end, I would argue that we risk having a mercenary and uncompassionate view of dying, which is both ungodly and anti-humanitarian. And I myself was greatly challenged when I looked into this, thinking that as a GP and having come across dying patients a lot, that I had sorted it in my mind, that I was greatly challenged. And I want to say up front that most of the material, in fact, almost all of the material that I'm using, is from Professor John Wyatt's excellent writings on dying and death and right to live, or right to die. Perhaps our thinking is more aligned with the secular culture around us than we realize, and in fact does not honor God, and therefore leaves us weak and ill-equipped in our conversations. Well, what's God's view of humanity, life and death? We know that God created us. He breathed his life into us and created us in his own image. God created us for a relationship with him and with one another. He chose for us to be embodied in this way, with this frailty and these limitations. He chose your genetic inheritance, the structures of your body and brain, the nature of your conscious awareness, your sensory experiences, and so on. Whether you like them or not, these are part of the givenness of what it means to be a human being. You were not born as an isolated individual, but you came into the world locked into a network of relations you did not choose, utterly dependent on the love and care of people you did not choose. Part of our created humanity is the reality that we are dependent on others. We are designed to depend on one another. We come into the world as helpless beings, totally dependent on another's love and care. We go through a phase of our lives when other people depend on us. We protect them, care for them, feed them. And then most of us will end our physical lives totally dependent on the love and care of others. We will need other people to feed us, protect us, and care for us. And this is not, as the world tells us, a terrible, degrading, inhuman reality. It's part of the design. It's part of the narrative of a human life. So, for example, when my mother was towards the end of her life, she could no longer feed herself. She didn't even know she was hungry. I had to give her things to eat. I had to give her soft food, and even then she choked. And then it reminds you of when you were small and your mother fed you. You didn't know any different. And if she didn't feed you, you would have died from hunger. In God's creation order, we are meant to be a burden to one another. This is what it means to belong to a family or to a community. So the life of a family, including the Christian church family, should be one of mutual burdensomeness. So here is an opportunity for the Christian community to model a different way of being fully human, of serving one another in our weaknesses and our dependences. And how different that is from the world around us. We know the father chose his son to be born in the likeness of man as a frail, dependent, weak, helpless human baby. The all-powerful, all-knowing creator God of the universe 
to belittle himself in such a way in his human birth, and then to belittle himself in such a way in his human suffering and death. That is the way of God. He is born as a helpless baby, grows and learns about the world. He lives and grows up in Palestine, experiencing human emotions and frailties. He suffered, he died, and he was buried. In the biblical narrative, suffering and glory are inextricably linked and intertwined. In place of a worldly philosophy that sees weakness, dependence, suffering and pain as negative, the Christian faith provides a richer and more nuanced understanding. So dying doesn't need to be a totally negative experience. There's a surprising opportunity of intense and wonderful life in the last days to live before you die. The end of life on this earth may be transformed by God's grace into an opportunity for growth and internal healing. Opportunities to focus on the things that matter, to reorder priorities and express what is really important in life, to fulfill lifelong dreams, to heal from the inside, to say sorry and thank you to those who matter to us, and to let go. And as Christians, we know that death is not the end. We have a sure and steadfast hope through Christ our Redeemer, who rose physically from the dead. He is the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in him will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in him will never die. Isn't that incredible? So I want to remind us that we are made to be dependent. We are made to be a burden to each other. So if this is all true, then we can begin to see why dying is about living at the end. It's not about not being a burden to someone else. There is something at the end of life that we can be talking about. The right to die? Well, we're called to enter into the pain and despair of those who see no way out except taking their own lives. We're touched by that. We hear stories of people. We know friends. We know others who get to that state of desperation. And if we're honest, in our darkest moments, many of us have unspoken fears about what the process of dying might involve for us and for our loved ones. The prospect of an easy way out, a quick and painless death under our own control, may seem appealing, compassionate, and humane. Let's look at a few definitions. Euthanasia, that's intentional killing. It's a deliberate and premeditated act to take life, to introduce death into a situation. Now, let's be clear, that's not the same as withdrawing or withholding medical treatment that's of no benefit or that's excessively burdensome. So that's a different thing from euthanasia, which is intentional and active. What about assisted suicide? This is when the doctor supplies lethal drugs to a patient at their request in order to help themselves end their own life. In reality, both euthanasia and assisted suicide are practically and morally very closely related. It's intentional killing. The intention of the doctor is that the patient should die rapidly and cleanly. The actions of the doctor are intended to end the life of the patient, to introduce death. It's the patient who swallows the drug or presses the button. And again, note that this is different from stopping or not starting a treatment that's not useful. 
And it's also different from pain and symptom treatment when the intention is not to kill, but to care. There's a difference. And it's different from when someone doesn't want medical treatment. So sometimes we can feel muddied by all the words, but euthanasia, assisted suicide, and sometimes people call it assisted dying to make it sound a bit more palatable, is actually intentional killing and ending of life. It's different from when sometimes we need to stop something because it's not doing anything. So what are the main arguments for the pro-euthanasia lobby? Well, it's about choice, autonomy, or control, including that fear of dependence I talked about. Compassion and economics. Let's look at autonomy. Autonomy is self-rule, or in the Greek, I make my own laws. It's based on individualism. I am at the center of the universe. I am the captain of my soul. Now, this principle is attractive to many Christians as it seems to go along with a deep concern for human freedom. But is self-destruction truly a dignified way to die? Is this for us to decide and take into our own hands? So the fear of dependence comes into it a lot when it comes to autonomy and control. The emphasis on individual choice as the ultimate expression of my identity and self-worth, that leads on to deep fear of dependence. And what's the second most used argument for pro-euthanasia? Compassion. Again, this argument may sound compelling and consistent with Christian thinking. Don't we want to be compassionate? Of course we do, but is killing the best practical and compassionate response that is available. What about pain relief, psychological, relational, and spiritual support? Do we need to go straight to killing as our act of compassion? We have high quality palliative care in the UK to address these needs. And where the provision isn't so adequate in some parts of the country, surely the answer is to ensure that there is excellent palliative care everywhere. Surely it's not instead to introduce legalized killing. But let's also not be naive. Compassion is a slippery concept and has been even used to justify horrific crimes. Think of Nazi Germany. The compassion there was to put people out of their misery who were disabled or not contributing to society. So beware of compassion and what that means in the secular world. We want to kill the pain, not the patient. Economics might be horrific to think, but some people think actually care costs too much. You're costing the NHS too much, so it's time for you to go. We can't afford to keep people like you here. You're taking the space of another one. So economics. Here's a quote from Baroness Mary Warnock. If you're demented, you're wasting people's lives, your family's lives, and you're wasting the resources of the NHS. There's quite a few people who actually think that way, including very vocal people, celebrities, who've actually talked that way. And again, it can be compelling, but if you stop to think, you can, you can imagine that that's how Nazi Germany and some of those things started. So, the pro-euthanasia lobby is strong and well-orchestrated. What you see and hear about on the media is deliberately staged to move the public. You're not just going to get anyone going to the high courts and being a high media profile without it, them first being versed and particularly brought um, to the media so that it um, tugs on the heartstrings of everyone. I'm not saying that those people aren't suffering or going through a difficult time and wanting to end their lives, 
but I am saying that they are particularly used for uh, in the media to um, to ch for a change in the law. Really, that's really what it comes down to. And the battlefields are the media, Parliament, the courts, and medical institutions. And some of you who are in healthcare will know also that even just getting to the Royal College of Physicians or the Royal College of GPs to change their stance on euthanasia and assisted suicide. And even if just to say that the medical institutions are taking a neutral stance is enough to maybe move the law to be changed for euthanasia. So again, let's not be naive about that, that these things are happening around us and are very well orchestrated. And the main, um, the main group being dignity and dying. What about the lessons from abroad? Surely there are several countries already in the world where euthanasia and assisted killing are, um, assisted suicide, assisted killing are um, already legal. And so there are some lessons to be learned. Unfortunately, we don't have time to go through all that now, but there's lots of material written on it and lots of cases and anecdotes that you can look at. And a lot of them make horrifying reading about the kinds of things that are happening in countries where this is already legal. So Oregon, where assisted suicide was legalized in 1997, is often seen as a gold standard. And the most common reasons, interestingly, for um, wanting um, assisted suicide are decreasing enjoyment of life, 90%, loss of autonomy in 89%, and loss of dignity in 75%. So it's really not about pain and suffering. It's actually mainly just, I don't enjoy life anymore. It's time to go. In Belgium, euthanasia patients um, are often used as organ donors because organ donation is, um, again, opt-out. So in other words, um, people are automatically organ donors in, in Belgium. So there is a motivation for patients to be killed off early. And there have been horrific stories of that happening. And we also know from other countries that when the law is changed, there's an annual increase in numbers. More people take up that offer of being able to end their lives early. And there is an expansion of categories, which itself is quite frightening. So in other words, it may be that the law initially was for terminally ill patients, but then it starts creeping on to just elderly patients or disabled patients or even worse than that. For instance, Canada is looking to extend euthanasia to anyone who indicates the wish to die. They don't need to have any terminal illness at all, or be dying. They just indicate they want to die. And Canada wants to extend euthanasia to them, including children and including those with a primary mental health diagnosis. So someone with depression or even a child, it is horrific what's happening around the world, and it's only a matter of time. So as Christians, we just need to be aware that these things are happening and be praying and be able to have conversations about them. So what does it mean? How do we engage in conversation then? So first of all, I think having, having the perspective of dying is about living at the end helps because it actually makes, helps you to see that it's not just about the end of life. There is a season. So it's about dying, living at the end is what dying is. Also, I think we need to be aware that any change in the law would place pressure on vulnerable people to end their lives for fear of being a financial, emotional or care burden upon others. And we're talking especially the disabled, the elderly, the sick, the depressed, those who can't actually speak for themselves. So a change in the law would place enormous pressure. And carers, relatives and health professionals would also feel pressure to participate. And again, we know this from countries where this is already legal. So 
pain, nausea, and other distressing symptoms can be effectively relieved. So we're, we're, if we're answering the autonomy question, we want to talk about the narrative of, of dying and the richness that can come and actually the hum, humanity um, that, we, that we shouldn't just stop, end someone's life when it's inconvenient or expensive. And when we're talking about the, um, the suffering and the pain aspect, well, actually, pain, nausea, and other distressing symptoms can be effectively relieved. And often that's not talked about in the press. What are the kind of sound bites that can be helpful in talking about this? Well, one of them is that you can kill the pain without killing the patient. These are useful, I found, because they help you to, to sort of hang your conversation using these sound bites. So you can kill the pain without killing the patient. And that helps you to talk about the fact that actually if someone's main problem is pain, you think, well, there are ways to address that. But which doesn't mean we have to kill the patient in order to address the pain. The right to die can so easily become the duty to die. So I've talked about that where actually, you know, the right to die, so people are wanting to have the right to die, but it becomes a duty and people feel com compelled or pushed or pressured to have to do that. And the other thing is that we need assisted living, not assisted dying. So if we as a society, as healthcare and social services, can help people who are isolated, who don't have enjoyment of life, who feel that life is not worth living, and that this is an area where we as a church can really make a difference as well, if we can actually be reaching out to those people who feel that way, they wouldn't feel that actually there's, there's no quality of life, that life is not worth living. So we need assisted living, not assisted dying. And encouragingly, it's really good to know that research has been done that when people hear the arguments against euthanasia and assisted suicide, that actually a significant proportion would change their minds. Because actually the public is very divided on this. And it is an emotional thing, uh, an emotional issue. But actually there's been enough to show that if you could credibly explain and sort of argue your points about especially that it's protection for the vulnerable and changing the law would actually put huge pressure, that people are actually willing to listen and change their opinion. And why does it matter? Because actually public opinion is very much used as an emotional tool for the pro-euthanasia lobby, um, which is why we get the pictures and the media coming in strong. So actually, um, you know, be encouraged that engaging these conversations can make a real difference. So let's return to the questions I asked you at the beginning. If your mother was dying, how would you want someone to treat her? If you were told that you had an incurable condition that would lead to death, how would you want to be treated? With dignity and compassion in this last season of life as a frail but precious human being created in God's image, that's how I would want to be treated. So as Christians, we can talk about a better story about what humanity is about and about the God who came down in frailty and dependence and suffered and died for us in frailty and dependence. We can talk about the better story of humanity in God's creation, the biblical narrative, that dependence is part of what it means to be human, that the vulnerable and the voiceless need protection. We are called to protect them as people of the Lord and that dying is about living at the end. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Commission podcast. Rachel and Felicia also wrote a really helpful article on medical ethics for our latest edition of articles. Go to commission.org/articles for this as well as links to more CMF resources.